Welcome everyone to the Analytic Mind podcast by Enterprise DNA. This is a podcast which dives into a range of different ideas and tips to empowering a data-led culture within organizations. We want you to develop the analytic mind to create immense value for yourself and your team. joining us today on 10 things you need to build for a successful data career. It's lessons I've put together over things I've learned over the past 30 years of my data career. I just wanted to share those with you. This is kind of a new type of content that we're looking at doing. And as we've talked to our members and talked to people in my network, I've learned there are a lot of people who are either interested in getting into a data career or in a data career and are looking to advance, I'm looking to build their skills. And so what we wanted to do was just provide some perspective on things you need to look out for in terms of building the foundation of your career, advancing in your career, and then reaching back and helping helping others in their career as well. I want to start with a story. It goes back to August of 1985. And I was in college. I was in my junior year at the University of Virginia. This was a day when I was sitting in the first day of Professor Stern's introduction to econometrics class. And I was excited about this class. I'd heard it was one of the toughest courses in the department. I'd been interested in majoring in e- economics for a while. And I, I, I'm typically kind of a middle of the, of the classroom guy. But in this case, I was excited. I sat in the, fir- in the front row and he, he walked into a blank blackboard, greeted the class and just wrote these three letters on the board, DGP. And he said, does anybody know what that stands for? And class was silent. And he said, this is the data generating process. And that everything you see in the world and every piece of data that you study is generated by a data generating process. And you never see that process. There's no way to reveal that process for certain. But the tools I'm going to teach you in this class are going to give you a glimpse of what that process looks like. And in doing so, you're going to be able to understand the world and the way things work in ways that people who don't know these tools and these techniques are never going to understand. And I just sat there and thought, that's what I want to do for a living. That that just seemed like the greatest thing I'd ever heard. And I remember thinking, I don't know who does that for a living. I don't know how you get into that field, but that's that's what I want to do. And I remember talking to him afterwards and starting to learn about econometrics and data science. We didn't call it that back in 1985, but that that's fundamentally what it was. And learning about careers and paths to get into that. And for the past 35 years, that's what I've done. And it's been a remarkably interesting and satisfying career. And so I don't really want to talk much about myself and what I've done. I just kind of put this up here to show over the course of that 35 years, I've just done a lot of different things related to data, data analysis, data science. And then I've also probably for about half my career been on the managerial side, overseeing data analysts, data scientists, financial analysts. And then about, I guess it was about five years ago, I was deputy director of a large office within the U.S. federal government, overseeing about close to 175 people and about $50 million. And I just got to the point where I really just missed getting my hands dirty with data and working on my own projects. And so I took a a voluntary demotion about four levels down to a team of six people working back on hands-on data projects and never regretted it, really enjoyed working with that team. And from that, it led to my involvement in Power BI, Power Platform, and ultimately to the the position I'm in now at Enterprise DNA. So the question is, you know, what, why, why a career in data? What's, what's so great and interesting about this? And I, I think there, there are three things that that jump out to me. And the first one is this quote from John Tukey, who is one of the the giants of modern statistics. And I remember seeing this quote. He said, "The best thing about being a statistician is you get to play in everyone's backyard." And that is that is absolutely true that over the course of my career i've i spent two weeks hanging out of a coast guard helicopter gathering data on beach use in puerto rico i've been diving in the florida keys to validate an an economic model of seagrass recovery i've testified in court as an expert witness i have worked at the command center of natural disasters 
I I've done just some fascinating stuff and it's it's not individual to me that I think if you talk to anybody who's been in the data field for a long time they've gotten to do some fascinating stuff because the skills that you bring to bear are things that everybody needs and there are just all kinds of situations where somebody needs a statistician or a data analyst or a data scientist and so you get you really do get to play all over the world in all these different backyards and it's it's beyond fascinating and i read something a couple of weeks ago online about from from Walid here is a friend of mine and the co-founder of Cellify BI, which is a top-tier business intelligence firm in London. And he really talked about kind of the, the current data boom and how data is really comparable to, to the kind of the oil boom at the turn of the century. That being able to extract that data, that there are so many companies and organizations and governments that are just drowning in data and don't know how to extract meaning from what they've got. And the ability to do that and to basically pull that, that data out of the ground like oil and refine it and make it into something useful is remarkably in demand. And it's, it's something that prov provides enormous opportunity for people with those skills. And so the fact that you're here today, you know, says that you, you're either kind of involved in this world or interested in becoming involved in this world. And I will tell you that the opportunities are just almost endless. There's huge demand. There is demand for all different sorts of skills. And it's just exciting to think where this is all going to go. The, the technology gets better and better and more accessible every, every month. And so, you know, kind of just looking back three or four years to where we are now is a huge leap. And three or four or five years from now, I can't even imagine kind of what the what the field is going to look like. And then as I have here the chance to see the unseeable and un understand the world better, you know, this goes back to Professor Stern and the, da the data generating process that you really do get the chance to understand the world in a way that to me is absolutely fascinating. I remember working on a consulting project for the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh and we they were having a problem with renewals and we spent about six months studying everything about renewals in the museum. We, we analyzed historical data, we did focus groups, we collected survey data, and we built a complex econometric model of renewal. And what we found was fascinating, that we thought it would be a whole series of factors that played into the renewal decision. And when you kind of strip everything away and looked at what the the DGP behind renewal decisions was, it was one variable. And that variable was if you step foot in the museum once over the course of the past year, you renewed. And if you didn't, you, you let your membership lapse. And it was just fascinating to see that in some sense, many times the, the estimation of the DGP leads to some very complex calculations and interpretations. And in this case, it turned out to be so remarkably simple. And to me, it was just a fascinating revelation and one that the museum was then able to use to really drive much higher renewals. And it's just, it's always interesting to me when you run those sorts of analyses and you understand the world in a different way than you did when you started, that you get counterintuitive results and you see the impact of those in actual actually play out in real life decisions. So these are all things that, that fascinate me and I hope you as well. So there's always a lot of talk about the different positions within data. And this is a good, this is from the Digital Analytics Association. And I think it's a, it's a pretty good comparison. You see a lot of these different comparisons. I frankly, don't put a huge amount of stock in any of them because at least in the organizations that I've been in, there's not these bright lines between analysts and data scientists and architect that it's kind of a catch as catch can that you kind of do what's needed when it's needed. And so, you know, there are times I know in the government where I was doing more analyst type work, building reports and dashboards, doing data storytelling, primarily descriptive analysis. And then there were other times where I was doing a lot of advanced statistical work a lot of predictive modeling and, you know, kind of building and evaluating models. And so 
you know, it kind of it kind of ebbed and flowed depending on the needs of the organization. So, you know, I think that typically what you see in the distinction between these is one is an education requirement, which is typically data scientist requires a a master's or a PhD, whereas analyst is typically just a bachelor's or, or potentially not even that. They're also the the big divide is often in terms of kind of advanced statistical capabilities and that. That that that's a demarcation between analyst and data scientist, which you know there's some validity to that, but there's also a lot of analysts I know who are very strong statistically. So I would just kind of look at these as not really two distinct jobs, but kind of a continuum that that kind of moves back and forth over over time as as need dictates. This is a cartoon that I've always found funny, um, but I think there's there's a lot of truth to it, and it it, it points to something that. I think is really important and is going to be a big theme in what I talk about today, which is, you know, it says dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And in the bottom panel, the the thing that jumps out to me and I, th I think about a lot is everybody in this in this field has different different goals and objectives. And the job you want, even if you're a data analyst or a data scientist, looks very different depending on the the specific field you're in, depending on the the specific skill sets you have, and a lot of other factors. And so, you know, really keeping in mind kind of what what is the career that you want and what does that look like? And gearing your your learning, your training, your your career strategy to that that end goal. And it may very well be that you don't know what that, you know, you don't know what the job you want is. And that's that's largely where I found myself in my career. I just kind of want to do interesting things and then, you know, kind of move on when those those were no longer interesting. But I think it's always important, you know, even if that's your your goal to keep that in mind. And we'll kind of see how that plays out in the in the training that we talk about. So in summarizing kind of the lessons of these these 30 plus years, I've, I broke it up into 10, 10 things you need to build. And the first one is technical skills. And really one, two, and three could have been in any order that I really look at them as the kind of the legs on the, on the, the stool or the foundation on which everything else is built. But we'll start with technical. That's that's a lot of what we at Enterprise DNA focus on. And a lot of it is about learning to use tools. But one of the points here is to be flexible about the tools you choose. That the, the key really is learning to use those tools to solve a wide range of problems. I see a lot of I see a lot of back and forth on you know LinkedIn about, you know. Tableau versus Power BI or Python versus R. And, you know, personally, I'm I'm a Power BI guy. I happen to like what it can do. And I like its strengths kind of match up with the type of work that I, I both like and want, want and need to do. But I don't get that hung up on it. You know, that really what you're looking for is, is tools that let you solve problems. And in thinking about kind of, to me, what a full stack of tools looks like for a data analyst or data scientist, I'm going to say minus one here, because I'm going to talk about the one remaining after, after on another slide. But Excel is kind of a foundational, a foundational skill and tool. I think it, you can take it too far. Um, I see people doing things in Excel that they should never be doing in Excel. I, I kind of liken it to, you know, somebody trying to build a, an entire house with a Swiss army knife. You, you can do it. And in some respects, it's impressive, but it's not a good idea. And there are just things for which Excel is not well suited and there are better tools on this list, but for kind of all purpose, Swiss army knife, as I say, it's fantastic. The next thing is, you know, we've really invested kind of heavily in Microsoft power platform, particularly power BI and the the ETL component of that and the data modeling, data visualization that I think, I think sometimes tools like Power BI get undersold as visualization tools, but they've really become powerful analytic tools as well. And for really huge data sets and for really complex analysis, you need more than that. But you can do a lot just within within Power BI. SQL is definitely a foundational skill. And going back to the Power Platform, you know, we've been very focused on Power BI, but Power Apps and Power Automate are becoming increasingly important. And we're we're really looking to, you know, kind of expand our offerings to to give folks 
capabilities in that full platform because that's going to become more and more important as as time goes on. Microsoft's investing a huge amount in those second two power apps and, and power automate and integrating those very tightly. And so learning learning to use that full platform, I think is going to become increasingly important. SQL, just a great foundational skill that Matthew Roach from Microsoft has an article about Roche's maxim that I've talked about a lot in some of the training I've done, which basically says you want to push your data processing and transformation as close to the source as possible. So in Power BI, instead of doing things in DAX, you want to push them to Power Query. And instead of doing them in Power Query, if possible, you want to push them to, to SQL. And so kind of learning that that full kind of upstream path is really valuable. And then Python or R, the, the tools listed can get you a long way, but for really large data sets and complex analyses, languages like Python and R will just make it much, much easier. You can do in, in one of those kind of complex statistical analysis in two or three lines what it might take you. 50, 60, or 70 lines to do within Power BI. And so the integration of the two, and whether you choose, you know, Python or R really depends, I think, largely on how much of your orientation is statistical versus kind of general analysis and visualization. Python is is broader and more flexible. I think R is stronger in statistics, but both can do can do a lot of the same things. And so that to me is kind of the full, the full tool stack. But you can be very effective without that that complete stack. And I would definitely warn against trying to master everything at once. That, that that's too big for anybody to to bite off. And I quite honestly don't know anybody with one exception who really has pretty strong mastery of that entire stack. That that is a lot to learn and it changes rapidly over time. And so you know, I, I think kind of looking at that full stack as a as a goal, but not not as a realistic a realistic expectation. But building steadily over time, that I think you know, you, if you master a few of those tools and then kind of add to your knowledge, you know, kind of steadily each day, you can you can get you can get pretty close to to that stack. Two traps to avoid, and I see this a lot and I've fallen into these myself. The first one is too much focus on passive learning, that there's a lot of good content out there. I think we have a lot of great content. There are a lot of other organizations and, and individuals that put terrific content out on the internet in video, in blog form. But watching watching videos and reading blogs is inherently passive, and particularly videos. And in some respects, the more skilled and better the the instructor is the more passive you can become you can just look and say okay that looks that looks simple i understand exactly what they're doing and then you sit in front of the computer yourself and you're like i have no idea what to do and i think probably all of us have experienced that at some point so you've really got to augment that passive learning with active active learning in terms of build taking the the lessons of the videos and the blogs and trying to build projects and you know whether it's reports or you know or models or dashboards encapsulate the learning that you've been doing but really put it in your hands to to make sure that you understand it and can implement it yourself and the other trap is building skills only for your current job that i think kind of looking at you know at power bi i know in the past for me there were certain types of reports financial reports and particularly hr reports that were critical in my previous job. And once I learned how to build those, my skills really started to stagnate because that was what I needed for those reports. And I wasn't progressing. You know, the, the reports themselves were, were really good. They were doing what they needed to do, but it was a static set of skills needed to produce those. And so what, you know, the analogy I like to think here is, is mixed martial arts, that learning to fight in a variety of styles, kind of stretching beyond what's needed for your current job and taking on, whether it's through a, a user forum or data challenges, you know, learning temporal versus spatial, categorical versus quantitative, descriptive versus predictive, you know, particularly if you have a, 
a strong IT department and a, a really shiny, nice data warehouse run by a really good database administrator, you're probably going to be getting data to analyze that is really clean and well-prepped. And it's really valuable to learn basically how to work with really messy, messy, dirty data. And so, you know, kind of forcing yourself to, to build those skills outside your current job is, is very critical, I think. The second thing is business knowledge. And this, this again, I, I, I don't want to say is number two. They're, it's kind of 1A, 1B, and 1C. And I think back to I have the wisdom of Professor Wood here. And, and Professor William Wood was my undergraduate advisor. And he was a professor of macroeconomics. And I really, really enjoyed his class and got to know him and would you know, would talk with him at, at times about, you know, what courses to take. And he would ask me, you know, kind of about, you know, where I was headed. And I remember a conversation very clearly with him one time where he said, what are you interested in studying? And I said, well, I really like your, your macroeconomics class and I'd be interested in studying macroeconomics. And he said, he kind of paused and he was like, well, he's like, I got to be honest with you. He said, there are only six people in the world who are doing anything interesting in macroeconomics. And the rest of us are just trying to prove whether those six people are right or not. And he said, unless you're one of those six people, that's not a field that's going to provide a lot of interest and satisfaction for you. But he said, because everybody's working on the same problems with the same data in the same context. But he said microeconomics, on the other hand, really gives you an opportunity to build a specialty of your own and, you know, build at the intersection of technical and business knowledge. So, you know, kind of going back to the Power BI analogy that if you say my interest is DAX, you know, unless you're Marco Russo or Alberto Ferrari or Greg Deckler or Matt Allington, you're probably not going to make a, a real great career out of just DAX. You know, those, those guys have, have, have done it, but there, there aren't, there aren't a ton of people who their career is DAX. And in the same way, you know, what Professor Wood was saying about macroeconomics, but if you take and really learn DAX and then say, okay, I'm going to take that. And at the intersection of that, I'm going to apply it to, human resources, or I'm going to apply it to, um, you know, healthcare, healthcare implementation or supply chain analytics or logistics. That then is, is something where you can really build an expertise and a niche and, and really build a career where there's, there's going to be demand where you are going, going to be at the forefront of expertise in that particular intersection of those those topics. And he was exactly right. And for me, it ended up being analytics and environmental and specifically a field called natural resource damage assessment, which looked at when there were environmental disasters like oil spills or chemical spills, what was the what was the damage that was caused to the public resources and what was the compensation needed to basically make the public and the the environment whole for that injury. And in the intersection of those two things, there weren't a lot of people who knew both the analytics and the the business side of that. And so it it ended up being a, you know a really fascinating career and you know one that provided a lot of opportunity. And I think that is really true of the intersection of any kind of in-depth business knowledge and technical knowledge and um, you know, kind of strong general analytic skills. What I'll say here in terms of if you happen to work for an employer that is really progressive, is really forward thinking and offers details and rotational assignments, I would, I would advise to jump at that opportunity and to expand your business knowledge in as many areas as you can. Even if it's not an area that you would necessarily think is going to be a career that you'd want to you'd want to pursue, and I've taken a number of details into fields that I knew were not my long-term interest, but were great opportunities to add to my business knowledge. And particularly, you know, 
at the agency I worked at, they had a really outstanding leadership development program. And the people in that program would get the opportunity to do three, four to six month details to basically wherever they wanted. Could be within the agency. It could be outside the agency. A number of people went and did details to Google. And so you kind of had, you know, we joked were kind of the Willy Wonka golden tickets to do whatever you wanted for your career in those details. And I would get questions from, from people who were in there about, well, what should I do with, you know, with my detail slots? And one of the things I always advised was to take one of those tickets and use it to gain business knowledge of the financial center of your organization. Even if you're not a budget or financial person, kind of learning how money moves in an organization, how budgets are funded, how resources are allocated, that is common to every organization. And as an analyst, learning how to analyze that type of data and particularly within your organization, their specific data will really help make you invaluable. That either either you'll work with directly with that financial center in terms of doing that analysis, or you'll better understand for your own your own office and organization kind of how those decisions are made and help them better be able to plan and strategize. And so that is that is something that if you grab if you get the opportunity to do i would i would absolutely grab it so number 3 is communication skills and this is the the third the third leg of the stool and i saw there was a great video on um Galen Holland who is one of our enterprise dna experts and is also the the author of the absent data youtube channel it's really excellent it's a lot of a lot of analytical content but also a lot of good career content and he did one on the top tools for, for data science. And number one was PowerPoint. And I remember seeing that and I was like, really powerful? Like not, not Python, not Excel, not R, um, not Power BI, you know, PowerPoint. And the point he was making, which in retrospect, I do agree with, which is that if you can't communicate your results clearly, the quality of your analysis doesn't matter that if you could do the best analysis in the world, but if you can't convey what you've done and what the results are and what the implications of those, those results are in terms of recommended paths of action, nothing else matters. And so being able to use a tool like, like PowerPoint, I think, you know, he was kind of using PowerPoint as a proxy for communication skills that, that really, that really is, you know, kind of, ultimately foundational to everything else. And it's something that in in my previous job, we used to actually have a, a part of the interview process where we had candidates do a 20-minute presentation on a project of their choice. And we said, it doesn't have to be something that's related to what we do. In fact, it's better if it's not. That The, the less we know about it, the better. Because we wanted to be in the position of a non-expert audience. And see how well somebody could take a complex project that they'd worked on and explain it to us as non-experts, get us to understand not only what they did, but why it was important and what the implications of that were. And that is a that is an essential skill and one that really can be learned and practiced. And you know, in your in your circle, you're gonna have people, whether it's friends or family or your, you know, your spouse or partner who doesn't really know anything about the, the substance of what you're, what you're doing. And they can be a great audience and sounding board when you, when you practice this and say, okay, at the end, was it clear? Did you understand? What didn't you understand? And particularly, you know, one of the things I think to, to really watch out for is, is tone. And I, I put this, this quote in here, because um, this was a comment we got back on the um, on Galen's recent Python course. And I thought it really pointed out something very important and valuable, which is that one of the skills in talking to particularly non-expert audiences is not talking over their head, but also not talking down to them. And this person was really making the point that he did a great job kind of hitting that middle tone 
of being kind of welcoming and understanding that you've not done this before, but not making you feel dumb for not having done it. And I, I just thought it was it was a, an important important point, and that tone and the ability to move between audiences is is really just an essential part of this. And I think one of the best communicators I've ever met was our head of research and development. And she, I'd seen her talk to third graders and I'd seen her talk to members of Congress. And maybe in your mind, there's not a lot of difference between those two, but it was amazing to me how she could, she could effectively communicate to both of those groups as well as PhD scientists equally well. And that is that is really just such a valuable thing to to learn to do. So the next thing is portfolio. So you've you've been working on your technical skills, your business skills, and your communication skills. How do you represent those? And the the key here is developing a portfolio that portrays those those skills in the best possible way. And one of the things that comes to mind is the advice always given to, to screenwriters, which is show, don't tell. And the other thing is focus on outcomes, not activities. Oftentimes when people talk about their skills, they talk about what they do. And to me, that's not really the point nor relevant, nor the best way of representing your skill set to a prospective employer or a, a partner or just the larger data community, that what you want to focus on is outcomes. You know, what are the tangible impacts that your work had? And it's, I think this gets to oftentimes also the reports themselves. And we see this a lot in the data challenges that people will, will, will submit a report that has a lot of slicers and it has a lot of um, filters and a lot of visuals and it's busy but it doesn't it doesn't focus on outcomes it doesn't focus on okay what what is this data telling you what impact does this have what do you what do you as the analyst want me to do with this and i think both in your your representation of your skills and in the the analyses you build you're not a a passive player in this in this process that in in analysis when you when you do a thorough analysis, you should have opinions about okay, what is the data telling me, and what do I think somebody looking at that should do with it, and representing that in your portfolio and your reports, I think is absolutely essential. And so, you want to build a polished portfolio that represents the best examples of that work, and. You know, here's where I'll I'll go a little bit into um, you know, in the in the sales mode in terms of the enterprise DNA challenges are geared exactly for this purpose. That every month what we do is provide a real business-oriented topic and it mimics an actual business situation. That in, in every case but one, there was one month we we used Formula One data just as a as a break and a chance to you know, kind of look at something popular and see what people would do with that data. But for all other 16 challenges, they have mimicked actual business situations and in many cases been actual business situations just with masked data. And in the case of the current one we have now, which is an environmental challenge, there's there's actually a real life client that is real life data. It is not even masked. It's actual data and so basically you were in the position of a of a consultant of a data analyst data scientist and they're saying okay what what are you seeing in this data and what what are your recommendations for what we should do and in this case it's it's really focused on visualization how should we what are the trends and how should we represent that and in in many cases it's what do we actually think what do you think the business should do or what are what are actions we should take? And those sorts of real world situations and challenges are perfect for building your portfolio because you may not be able to use actual reports from your job because of 
confidentiality and sensitivity issues. But for the for the challenges, all that data is either public or it's masked. And so publish the web is fine. Posting those publicly is encouraged. And we, instead of asking for just a screenshot, what we look for is a full report that incorporates your, your UI UX designs is basically what you would provide to a real life client who asks for, who asks for a report. And so in presenting that in your portfolio, that is going to give a prospective employer or, or client a really good picture of your capabilities. And one of the things we really want to do and we're working on right now is a, a challenge portal where you will be able to basically every month when did you participate, you can just upload your your report to that portfolio under your name. You can publish that portfolio, you know, to your LinkedIn page to, you know, use it on a resume, you know, send it, you know, send it through social media. And our goal here is to allow you not only to post challenge entries, but to post other non-challenge analyses you've done that you want to use to round out your portfolio. And so, you know, seeing this is such a, a critical aspect of building your career. It's something we really want to help everybody do and provide that capability. So within the next few months, hopefully you'll be seeing that portal and we'll be talking a lot about that. And if you're on the hiring manager side, there's a real lesson here, which is the best predictor of how somebody's going to do on a job or perform on a job requirement is to make them do that task and evaluate how they do. So if you're looking to hire a Power BI developer, the best predictor is how well do they develop Power BI reports? If you're looking for, you know, a really great communicator, it's how well do they communicate, you know, a 20-minute presentation to a non-expert audience. And so the more you can make your hiring process about the capabilities you're actually trying to hire, the better predictor you're going to have and the better the better suited your candidates are going to be to that to that position. So I wanted to to show you just a um an example portfolio. And this is this is a portfolio from Zoe Douglas, who is a an enterprise DNA expert, an absolutely phenomenal report designer. She actually just won the the Maven data uh, challenge and has has won pretty much you know every every challenge out there. Develops beautiful reports, really actionable reports with that are that are clear, that are insightful, that are easy to use, great user experience. And so she's put together a really nice portfolio of, of her work. And in that portfolio, I put the address here. You can go, you can go to it. You can basically go to the, the publish the web examples of her reports. You can, you can play around with those. And again, from the, the standpoint of a hiring manager, she doesn't need to tell me anything about her Power BI report development skills. Three minutes of looking at this this portfolio, I know this is somebody really talented. I don't, you know, certainly, you, you know, you always want to interview people, but there, there's not much more I need to know that I, I won't learn from watching, you know, basically playing with what's on this portfolio for five minutes. So the next thing is professional network. And one of the, the really key points here is like financial investing, you always, when, when people talk about investing in retirement, that always, you always get the example of, you know, the person who starts at age 23 and contributes for 10 years and stops versus the person who starts late and contributes for 20 years after that. And the, the person who starts early is always going to be better off from an investing standpoint. And the same thing is true from a network and engagement standpoint, that the earlier you engage and develop that network, the better off you're going to be in terms of both opportunity. And what I have here is the ability to magnify your effectiveness and resolve roadblocks for yourself and others over time. And what this is something my dad, who is CEO of a large company, told me early in my career is that there will come a point in your career if you've, you've invested in building a, a good network where you can just call people up with, you know, on, on the phone or send an email and you can resolve problems that you know, kind of cut through the noise and, you know, maybe things that were longstanding problems for days or weeks. And you can do that because 
there comes a point in your career, probably in your, your late 30s to your 50s, where the people you came up through the through the system with, you know, whether it's in school or kind of early in your careers and the people you networked with early, you you rise through the organization and through through your career. They do the same. And so people that are just kind of your your peers and cohorts become very accomplished, very powerful. And you can you can just tap that network and resolve things and with people who to you are just are just friends and you know co-workers but to other people are people they would not have access to and i found this myself over over time that there is there's a there's about a 10 year period where you really have the ability to do this and to really magnify your effectiveness because your peer group has that has that power and capability and they haven't started retiring yet, and so you you get a you get a only kind of a time limited run in this. But the other thing about it is, you know, that building that network is not just kind of what they can do for you and the opportunities they can provide, but really it's just a great source of of learning, of energy. There's there's something really powerful that comes from working with people in the same field, sharing that same passion. You know, I talked about kind of why people love data careers and kind of sharing that with with people who feel similarly is is very energizing and you know is, is one of the things that I've found to be you know really motivating even even in difficult times and so you know one of the tips I have for building your network is more and more you see kind of opportunities for community of practice and I was just talking to somebody um, yesterday, kind of new in my network, um, who has built this remarkable community of practice within their their organization um, with data analysts, data scientists, and basically they run internal seminars, they have presentations, they have kind of problem solving sessions, and it's it's all internal, and it's something you would normally have to go you know to a user group or you know, an online forum, but they do it internally. And the beauty of that is that they're not only relating on the technical issues, but they've also got the same commonality of understanding of the business knowledge. And that that is really powerful. And so if you have that that opportunity, you know, that is that is gold. And there's a great there's a great analytic mind podcast that Sam Mackay, our CEO and founder, did with the head of analytics from Truist Bank. It used to be SunTrust. It's a big bank in the U.S. And he had, had developed a very similar analytics community of practice. And it's a really good discussion both about what it's like to participate in that sort of thing and also from the management side, what it takes to build that sort of community of practice. So if you have that open to you if you have the type of leadership training cohort where they take people in data careers and give them leadership opportunity and training. I was just talking to another another person in my network who works for a large company and they do they do kind of early career data leadership training and they've got 800 people in their organization who are somehow involved in analytics and they take and run you know kind of annual training cohorts to build those networks within within those those data professionals and it's a it's a remarkable program and i think hugely beneficial for the people participating but also for the organization but if you don't have that available to you there's there's a wealth of of opportunities to get involved in those communities of practice there are analytics user groups, professional conferences, online forums and i would really just encourage you to find one that's geared to your your interest that is comfortable to you and really engage because the payoff is is huge. LinkedIn is something I've never been a big social media user, but for my current position, it's really important. And I've actually found it to be a much better resource and more enjoyable than I expected. And really great for building your network for engagement. And I particularly want to shout out a guy named Albert Bellamy, um, who is a former active duty Marine, who is also a, a data analyst. And um, he has kind of cracked the algorithm for LinkedIn in terms of maximizing followers and um, engagement with, with content. He, he, he built a network of over 10,000 followers in a year. And part of that is because he 
he just has really valuable content. But part of it is he's also figured out how to do it. And he runs this thing called the the LinkedIn Hard Mode Challenge, which is a 30-day challenge. I'm just on day two of it. And it it is really valuable in terms of building your network and learning how to use the resources of LinkedIn for engagement and, and, and network building. So definitely recommend taking a look at that. One of the other things that I've found over the years is I've heard the incredible power of a free lunch, which is there've been a lot of people I've come across who are doing just really interesting work or have built an interesting career in the data field somehow. And I've just called them up or sent them an email and say, Hey, I'm really fascinated by what you've done. Can I buy you lunch? And we can just talk about, you know, kind of how you, how you came to that, how you implemented it. Um, you know, what that experience has been like, what advice you can offer to somebody who, you know, wants to do something similar. And I've done that dozens of times and I've never been turned down that people, um, you know, people like a free lunch, but they also, they, if, if you love what you do and are invested in it, you're happy to talk about it. And I found people in this field are incredibly generous in sharing their their knowledge and expertise. And so if you give people the the opportunity to talk about what they do and to share their passion for it, they will do it. And you can learn a tremendous amount from that. Um, and the last thing I'll say on professional network is, you know, always be thinking about how to create value for the people in your network. Um, and the, the biggest thing I found is share your work that every time I would, I would come up with what I thought was an interesting analysis or a technical protocol or something I thought would be valuable for the people in my, in my circle. I would send it around and just say, hey, you know, for those interested, this is something that's working well for us. Feel free to use it if it works for you. Ignore it if it doesn't. And it was amazing how much of, you know, kind of great relations I was able to build just by sharing that information. And sometimes it would be, um, you know, just building a, a stronger relationship with with the person. Sometimes they would respond in kind and say, hey, you know, I've done something similar. Here's here's what I've done. Or they would take what I did and say, hey, that's really cool. But have you thought about this? Or have you tried this sort of analysis that I think would improve what you've done? And so, you know, always be thinking of, you know, what can you share, you know, kind of drop that pride of ownership and, um, you know, get your work out there. And I think, you know, always be kind of focused on that, that value creation. And I think it will, it will magnify and come back to you, you know, with interest in terms of um, the value that you, you get out of doing it. Six through eight is related to your network. It's mentors, coaches, and what I call truth tellers. And these are very different things that I think get, get confused and kind of lumped together in ways where people think these are kind of the same thing and they're not. Um, and I think it's it's not a semantic thing, but they're very, very different purposes between mentors, coaches, and then this this last group. I, I call them truth tellers. It may be peer coaches or um, you know, sounding boards or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But the three are really, you know, the first is mentors. And these are these are people who have achieved the career that you want that do the job in a way you really respect and are willing to help you achieve what they've achieved or in some case, you know, more. And these, these people are, are absolutely essential in terms of, you know, nobody, nobody does this alone and that everybody, everybody who succeeds in this, in this field does so with the help of, of many other people along the way. And I think one of the things about mentors is they will recognize, the, the great mentors will recognize the way they've been helped along the way. And that the only real way to pay that back is to do the same for other people when they're in the position to do so. And so 
again, you know, I've had people really, you know, go, go to great lengths to, you know, help my, my career and my development in ways that they didn't have to do. And, you know, we're just incredibly generous and, um, you know, kind of finding those people. And again, that, that power of the free lunch is, it works not just on, on, you know, technical people, but it works on mentors beautifully. If you, if you go to somebody and say, Hey, I really, I really respect the way you, you do your job. You've achieved things that I want to achieve. Would you be willing to sit and, and talk with me about that? Again, I've never heard a no to the, to that question. Coaches, on the other hand, are very different. These are people with really high technical proficiency in areas where you want to improve your skills. And these may be mentors are people who are ahead of you. These are people who've been where you've been and have achieved more at that point in their career. Coaches may be people at your level. It may be people below your level. It may be people above your level. It just They just happen to have a skill that you need to do your job better. And that's a big difference between mentor and coach is mentor is about your career. Coach is about your job. And it, I have a friend named Paul who um, always talks about the difference between leadership and management. And again, those are two things that get, get conflated. And he talks about leadership as doing the right things and management is doing things right. And, um, mentoring versus coaching has a very similar analogy, which is mentoring is, is doing the right things for your career. Coaching is doing your job right or doing your job better. And while there may be overlap, those are, those are often very different people. And the third group are even, even different from those in that, as I say, as an analyst, you are definitely going to get to the point at times where you are you are deep deep in the weeds and lose perspective on your own work and this this frankly happens to me a lot and even on the data challenges i get i get wrapped up in those and i will go a mile deep and then i'm like i don't even know if this is good you know i don't i don't know if if the analysis is good and i don't know even if i think the analysis is good is anybody going to understand what i've done and be able to put that into, into actionable, um, recommendations. And so it's absolutely critical <clears throat> to have people in your, in your circle who you trust and they trust you that you can, you can hand them something like that and they can tell you, this is crap. This is not good. And here's why it's not good. And that you, you will trust that you will take that you know, to heart. And the other thing that's really valuable about that is the negative inference, which is if, if your small group of truth tellers is not telling you something is bad, then you can be certain that it's pretty good. Um, because if they see something where you're going, you're going off course, they're the group that will tell you. And it, it's, it's hard to find. It takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of trust to, build that relationship. And I've been very fortunate to have two or three people throughout my career who I've built that relationship with. And they will tell me when, when I'm off course and in, in no uncertain terms. And that is remarkably valuable and really something I think you should, you should think about building. And the, the, the key is to build it early because the, the higher you rise, the harder it is to find people who are going to really tell you the truth about your own work. Um, and so the earlier you build that, the better. Um, this is just a table I put together that lays out the different, excuse me, the differences between these three groups. I'm not going to go through it. I think I've talked through a lot of it already, but I think it's valuable just in terms of thinking about for your career, you're going to need people in each of these boxes. And in order to do that, you need to understand the difference between them. And so, you know, take a look at this chart and think about who are the people in your, your life and your career that meet these, these criteria and are, are filling 
those needs for you. And if you don't have people in those boxes, it's really, I think, something to kind of put on the list of an effort to make to find people. Because I think if you're really interested in advancing in any career, you've always got to have people in in one of those, each of those three boxes. So number nine is formal credentials. And I put it here kind of because I have to, not because I think it's valuable. Um, in most cases, I think formal credentials are extremely overrated. Um, I think they are lazy predictors of future performance. Um, oftentimes, I think they're a better test of whether you're a good test taker than whether you have actual capabilities. Um, and one of the things about you know, credentials is for the most part, they focus on technical capabilities, not business knowledge or nor communication skills. So if you think of that, that three-legged stool, if you're only testing one of those things, you're not, you're not getting a full enough picture to really be valuable. Um, and in my view, the best organizations really focus on capabilities, not credentials. And, and you know, I, I was 30 years in an organization, that, you know, the U.S. federal government that was very highly tied to credentials. And I understand why in terms of, you know, issues of fairness and equity, but at the same time, it really, it really limited the people, the candidates we had. And there were a lot of people who would have been excellent in those positions who never got considered because they didn't meet those threshold credentials. And, you know, for example, in the positions that I, I was in, in, in data analysis, it required a master's degree. And if you didn't have a master's degree, you, no matter how good you were, no matter how good your portfolio was, your resume would not even be considered and passed along. And I think that's a real loss. Really, to me, the key is capability, not credential. And so when we built the enterprise DNA certification, we really built it around. It's It has a, a test component. Of, it's one of the three components. And the only reason it's in there is because employers expect it to be there. I don't think we think it's valuable. I certainly don't. But the two parts of it that are valuable is demonstrated capabilities in the data challenges and practical problem solving in the user forums. And this gets to the kind of fighting in different styles, you know, looking and seeing, okay, how can, can somebody in, you know, the financial world, how do they do when they're looking at forum problems on logistics data or on, oh, you know, epidemiological data or environmental data? You know, how, how good are their general problem solving skills? Not just do they, do they have, you know, specific credentials, but the recognition is that credentials are still often the price of admission for consideration that, you know, some places won't look at you unless you have a DA 100 certification. Others won't look at you unless you have a master's degree in a, you know, statistical or data science related field. And that gets back to my earlier point about knowing where you want to go, that if where you want to go is something that requires that credential, then that's the price of admission you have to pay. And if you want to do that, then you're going to have to go get that credential. But if you're not, if you're not looking toward one of those positions that requires that formal credential for consideration, I would really, really take a critical look at whether or not you, you want to invest the time and money, because um, if it's not needed, I think time is better spent developing capabilities, but others others may disagree. But um, I think it's worth being skeptical as to the value of credentials. And you know, quite quite honestly, you know, with the price of college education now, you know, I think a reasonable question is, you know, is is it worth two hundred thousand dollars to get a college education, or could you take a fraction of that money? And from a data analyst standpoint, develop much better skills, you know, through other means of training and other means of um, gaining experience in the field. And I think that's a very reasonable question. I'm not going to say one or the other, but I think 
there's there's a reasonable debate to be had that I think maybe ten years ago would not have been not have been a, a close call at all. And then number ten is reputation for helping others. Um, and I put this in here because the data field is far too expansive, complex, and constantly changing for any one person to succeed on their own. It's not like being being an author or you know, a job where you could, you know, you can kind of be on your own and solve the problems you need to solve solely within your own capabilities that it is just, it is just constantly expanding. And, you know, as, as being part of the enterprise DNA expert team, you know, one of the things that's always a reminder to me is the number of times during the day that people on our our expert channel will ask questions of each other. And these are, these are some of the most highly skilled people I've ever met and incredibly accomplished. And these questions indicate they, there's no one person who knows even close to all that they need to know that, you know, it takes about a combination of about 20 people on our team to, you know, to answer all the questions we need to answer. And so, you know, data is, absolutely a team sport and the people who are are most highly valued in this field are great teammates and people who recognize that the community plays a huge role in their success and by going out of your way to help others to share your your expertise and knowledge whether that's technical knowledge or business knowledge or communication skills or whatever that is if there are tools you've built um you know, if you're a content creator and you're talented that way, you know, the ways in which you you help others really signals that you understand this team aspect. And I will just say that if you if you build that reputation, really keep that focus, good things will happen for you. I think everybody who I've met in the community who is active and, you know, is is generous in terms of contributing their their time, their expertise, really pays off. And, you know, just both in terms of direct payoff and also just in terms of being a very satisfying way to spend your career. And I'll I'll speak to my my situation, which is the current position I'm in is I will say, and I've I've had a you know a wonderful career and done a lot of interesting stuff. The the job I'm in now with Enterprise DNA is the most fascinating job I've had. And I got it entirely as a result of volunteering on the user forum that I um I was trying to build my own skills. I answered some questions. Um Sam Mackay, the the CEO, happened to see some responses, you know, contacted me. We got to be friends. And one thing led to another, and that's where that's where this job came from. And it all happened just because I was out in the community just trying to do my best to help. And, you know, I'm not pointing to my situation as anything special because I think everybody who's who's out in the community doing that can point to a way in which it's really paid off for them and for others. And so, you know, I think it's just something it's something that just kind of keeps the the community vibrant. And I think will really be something that if you're not actively involved yet, um, you'll find it to be a real, a real boost, both to your career and just, just your overall, overall job and life satisfaction. So in closing, you know, you, you, you've chosen a magical profession here that I, I am constantly impressed and reminded that the people who do this for a living all seem happy. You know, they, I, I've, I've never met anybody who is involved in data analytics. Who's like, I hate this job. Um, and I've met a lot of people over the years who hate their job, but not one in this profession. And I think that's pretty magical and it will give you opportunities that you can't imagine. It will give you entree into fascinating ideas, you know, kind of the glimpse of that data generating process. And I, I wish you the the best success in that. And so in summary, you know, as I've talked about, you know, always focus on building toward your end goals. Work every day for just a little tangible improvement in your, your tech skills, 
your business knowledge or your communication skills. I have a post today on LinkedIn about, you know, that very thing, kind of micro-loading and, you know, just putting a little bit more weight on the bar every day. And it's barely noticeable, but over the course of weeks, months, and years, you can gain enormous skills and accomplishments just by kind of small progress applied diligently over a long period. Grow in the community, focus on giving back to it. Um, and I think you will at some point have the opportunity to share the the lessons learned of, of your great career. And as I say, I wish you the best along the way. If I can help in that journey in any way, you know, please let me know. I'm always happy to connect on LinkedIn. That's a great way to reach me. I'm also constantly on the Enterprise DNA Forum. I'm just at Brian J on that. And so I hope I hope you found that helpful. I hope there's been at least something you can you can use in that to kind of help boost your 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 path along the way. At this point, what I want to do is just you know turn it over and take any questions. If you've got points you want to raise, if there are things I've said you you want to disagree with, I'm always always happy to hear alternative viewpoints. Thank you very much. You know, as um, I hope that was helpful, and you know, appreciate your uh, your support on on LinkedIn. I. I Always enjoy your your comments and interactions. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. It's great to be connected, and I hope you are enjoying the content we're creating through the Analytic Mind podcast. If you enjoyed this session, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified of each episode as we release them. If you want to learn more about Enterprise DNA and the many initiatives we're working on, check out www.enterprisedna.co. There we have a range of resources to download, events to attend, and information to explore. We're leading the charge around this new paradigm we're living in, where tools like Power BI can literally change how an organization manages, analyzes, and distributes insights that can make an impact. It's an exciting moment in the analytics space. So glad that you're on this journey with us. Take care.